Hey there and welcome back. Uh, we're now in our third video for the first week of our Kingdom of God discipleship module. And in the last video, we looked at the political and social climate of Jesus uh, and his time. And it was a time when Jerusalem was brimming with expectations of a Messiah who would come and save the Israelites and help them regain freedom in their land. And now in this video, we are going to examine how Jesus describes his kingdom in contrast to those popular conceptions of the kingdom in Jesus' time. So we're going to look at a couple scripture passages to bring all of this together. First, let's look at Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. Luke 167 says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So Zechariah, inspired by the Spirit, picks up on these themes that would be very relevant to the Israelites, a horn of salvation, a salvation from our enemies. And so John the Baptist then is going to proclaim the coming Messiah. He's called the new Elijah. He dresses the part and he attracts huge crowds in his ministry. And why is that? Because in the Israelites' mind, if John is like Elijah, the Messiah cannot be far behind. And this helps us to understand some of Jesus' early popularity in his ministry. If we take a look at John chapter 6, there's this giant crowd following Jesus, and they've seen some of his miracles, and they're eager to see what's next. So Jesus sees this crowd and turns to his disciples and asks them, well, how are we going to feed them? And the disciples don't know. They say it's going to take half a year's salary to feed this many people. But Jesus miraculously multiplies five loaves of bread and two fish so that Everybody has their fill, and there's even plenty of leftovers. And the crowd loves it. They, they go wild. This is our guy. We've been waiting for him. And verse 14 says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. I mean, imagine what he can do against the Romans. Right? The, these Jews have come to a Jesus rally and are awaiting his next command. Just tell us, Jesus, we'll storm Jerusalem, we'll kick the Romans out, we'll get our temple back. But what does Jesus do? Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Again and again, we see Jesus refusing to be the type of Messiah that the people wanted. If we were in that situation. We could have easily compromised. Right? Well, sure, they're a little bit off about what they want, but man, think of this opportunity. Don't miss this moment. You can build an army right now, Jesus, and we can just nudge him in the right direction later on. But Jesus will have none of that. He refuses to tie his kingdom to political or national interests. Let's now jump to Matthew 11. John the Baptist finds himself in prison. And he's, uh, the reason he's in prison is basically he called out Herod for unlawfully marrying his brother's wife. And John is hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing, miraculous things. And John wonders, well, if Jesus is doing all those miraculous things, why isn't he breaking me out of prison? So he sends word to Jesus. Are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? He's wrestling with that question. If Jesus is the Messiah, why isn't he freeing this prisoner? We've got a revolution to start. I want to get out there and get in the action, Jesus. Jesus responds, though. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Notice in Jesus' response, he essentially says, yes, I'm the one, just look at what I'm doing. But John is wondering, well, why don't you use some of those works to get me out of jail? But Jesus doesn't even mention that. And then a bit later in Matthew 14, John the Baptist is beheaded. And his disciples go and bury the body and then go to let Jesus know. And certainly you can imagine their sadness and their frustration. And look at all these other people that Jesus is helping. Why couldn't he help John when he needed him? And John the Baptist helped Jesus get where he was. But when John needed Jesus, Jesus was nowhere to be found. But Jesus hears that news and he doesn't hold a press conference to threaten Herod. But he goes and spends some time by himself. It doesn't seem like Jesus is making uh, any sort of king. He doesn't look like any sort of king of a kingdom. Well, let's kind of look at one more set of passages. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8 through 10 to better understand what kind of kingdom Jesus is building. So in Mark 8, the light goes on for the disciples. Jesus asks them, well, who do you think I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah. They finally get it, right? They realize this is who Jesus is. But then, linked with this confession and understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, verse 31 tells us that, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So we're going to kind of diagram this because I think it's helpful. Jesus basically uh, tells them, about his death. Now, Peter doesn't like this, right? Well, no, this isn't how a Messiah works. He wins. He doesn't die. And then he takes Jesus aside and basically rebukes him. And then Jesus saves some of his harshest words for Peter after he rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. And so we see a reaction to Jesus saying, I'm going to die, is that Peter rebukes him. And then Jesus goes on to teach right after that, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So the the disciples here, we, we see this cycle. Jesus talks about his death. They don't like that. He rebukes them. And then Jesus teaches them something about uh, what it means to be his disciple, to be part of his kingdom. And it means take up your cross. You could say it means the cross. So notice kind of what we have going on here. The disciples finally understand Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And Jesus then teaches them about, okay, the next step of now that you guys understand who I am, here's the next step in my kingdom. And they're ready for it. Oh, tell us, Jesus, we're ready. What do you do next? What are we going to do? Jesus says, I'm going to die. What? What? No, that's not how you restore our glory. Well, now let's move to Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Notice the familiar language. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. So Jesus again talks about, hey, I'm going to die. This is the plan. And how do the disciples respond? Well, they're confused. And instead, they debate about who is the greatest. 
Hey, hey, Jesus, when Jesus is king, what cabinet position will he give me? Who's going to be the vice president? Who's going to be the minister of defense? They don't understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. He talks about his death, and then they start asking and debating, well, who's the greatest about us? Right? Who's going to have those top positions? And so then in verse 35, Jesus tells them that in his kingdom, whoever wants to be first must be last, uh, the least of all, and the servant of all. So he says, you must be the least in his kingdom. Let's move on to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, is this starting to sound familiar? Jesus keeps kind of repeating himself. He's saying, I am going to die uh, and be raised. He says it for the third time. Okay. Now, how do the disciples respond? Oh, okay, Jesus, third time again, we get it. You're going to die. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be beaten, right? Okay, your kingdom obviously looks different than what we thought a kingdom looks like. Nope, that's not how the disciples respond at all. James and John asked Jesus, okay, well, when you're in glory, who can sit on your right and left, right? Like, who can have those thrones to your right and to your left? We want to be on the throne, too. We want to be right by your side in your glory, right? We want a throne, that's how they respond to that. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus calls the disciples together and say, You know that those who are regarded as ruler of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. So Jesus responds by saying, um, you must become like a slave of all. And so what we see here is this interesting cycle that Mark gives us three times. And I think what he, do, he does that in order to show us how hard it is for us to get our mind around the very nature of God's kingdom. Jesus explains that the way his kingdom will be established is through his death and resurrections. Right? The disciples though, continually misunderstand it by rebuking him, by fighting over who's going to be in that position of power and in glory. And then Jesus has to, again, redefine what a true Messiah, a true Savior is, and show them. And then the climax of all this comes in Mark 10, verse 45, where he says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many that at the center of Christ's kingdom is his death, his sacrificial death on the cross, that he would give his life as a ransom for many. And that is one of the controlling aspects that defines God's kingdom. That is the way of God's kingdom. It's the way that it grows and even changes the world. And this is contrary to how all other earthly kingdoms work. And that's what we're going to be spending the next several weeks talking about. So eventually the disciples start to get the nature of Christ's kingdom, but not all of them. Judas betrays Jesus. Uh, Larry Hellyer actually argues that it was patriotic nationalism that was likely the reason for Judas's betrayal. He writes, when it finally became clear to Jesus that Judas was not going to restore the Davidic dynasty and drive out the Romans, 
Judas was bitterly disappointed and, in anger, decided to turn Jesus over to the authorities. And sure enough, Jesus died. And it looked like it was the end of his movement, right? He was a one-hit wonder. He couldn't deliver in the end. The Romans got the best of him. And so the tensions from the Jewish perspective only grew for freedom from the tyranny that they were under. Well, Jesus didn't do it. We've got to come up with a new plan to get our land back, to get our nation back. And those tensions boiled over one day in AD 66, after Jesus had ascended back to heaven. The Roman governor raided the temple for some of its money, claiming that it was for the emperor, and then later arrested a number of Jews. And this act led to a Jewish protest that turned into a riot that overtook several of the military garrisons in the area and eventually pushed the Romans out of Jerusalem. They finally got to do what Jesus hadn't done. All right, we've made it, but it wouldn't last. Over the next several years, the Romans would slowly chip away at those Jewish strongholds and climaxing in the siege at Jerusalem. And surrounded by Roman armies, the Jewish groups started fighting within about what to do next, which only further weakened them. And then the Romans sensed they finally had their opportunity to breach the final wall of Jerusalem and level the city, tear down the temple, and burn everything that remained. Jerusalem had fallen, along with its temple, which today is buried under the Al-Aska Mosque. See, the quest for an earthly kingdom only led to a great loss and a great tragedy. But Jesus' kingdom, which seemed to have ended with his death, was slowly growing, right under Rome's nose, not with stone and gold, but with people of the living God, who finally understood Jesus' words, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the way of the kingdom, and it's counterintuitive to every fiber of how we think it needs to work, but it's the only way to see lasting change and hope in our world.